Hey, party people. Welcome back to another episode of the Becoming Fully Human podcast. Um, my name is Cam, and I never really know how to start these intros. Um, I realize I never actually gave a rundown on who I am, and I think that part of that is because all these ways in which we describe ourselves are so impermanent. So, you know, writing on my website, um, I did an intro to myself back in the day when I launched the site and every so often I go back to it and have to change the whole thing because there's some things that evolve more obviously like our age, but our story too, like the story of the person who started my website back in I don't even remember when it was, 2018, I think. That story is no longer really my story. It is definitely, it's like an old coat. You know, Ram Dass talks about shedding the, the coat when we die. But we're kind of taking off the proverbial coat of who we are multiple times throughout our life, if not daily, because we're constantly learning and growing and shedding layers of ourselves at least that to me is the goal is actually not taking on new identities like the trajectory of growth often entails um, becoming something outside of yourself and where I'm at now it's about actually unpeeling layers and remembering my true essence which is the never-changing stillness that exists it's like the eye of the storm the storm is all these stories and beliefs that we have about the world about the duality of right and wrong and good and bad and it's our wants and our needs and our desires and all the things that we think that we need whereas in the present moment just at our true essence everything is always okay and we have everything we need and Anyways, that was a long-winded way of saying that any introduction I give to myself about myself, about who I am, seems so irrelevant because it's just a story, really. And my purpose here now is to really start letting go of the things that I believe because I find that the more I cling to them, the more misery I bring myself, which brings us to today's episode that doesn't actually have that much of a theme I guess I'm just feeling I'm I'm feeling I'm trying not to feel to get too identified with the feelings but in saying that we're having a human experience and I think it's still important to acknowledge the things that we feel but not get too attached to them and in the moment I'm feeling a whole lot of stuff I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed and sad in some ways and then really happy in other ways it's like yeah built into the sadness of loss is also the space that we create for grace and transformation so when I first launched this podcast about three months ago um I entered in without really wanting to give it too much of a label, but I guess from my perspective, a romantic relationship with someone who 
really challenged my way of navigating in the world and it actually has so little to do with him and way more to do with the way that I observe myself and the dynamic of this relationship because holy shit nothing shows you your shit like love really nothing brings up all the work that you have to do like romantic love and so I'm just going to go on a bit of a ramble to start I posted a question box a Q&A box on Instagram and I'm going to interweave some of the questions with my ramblings I think this episode more than anything is a bit cathartic for me to just talk and open up and share and in that observe the way that I think and operate and try and laugh at it because there's such a duality to everything and really the things that we feel are fleeting they are not who we are they are so impermanent and you know even even in heartbreak there's such ego associated with heartbreak like the stories that we tell ourselves about what we need, what we want, and the potential we saw in the future with this person and how they make us feel good and safe and to an extent worthy and lovable too. Um, It's all about me. Like the very nature of feelings are so impermanent that to cling to them is, is actually pretty absurd and egotistical. Even the nature of apologizing to someone for breaking their heart it's pretty romantic in a way, but no one has the ability to hurt you but yourself. No one can hurt you. Only you can hurt yourself because you're clinging to the pain of the stories that you projected onto this person. Um, you know, reality is all there is at the end of the day, the present moment. And when we feel hurt, we're mourning potential. Potential is not real. The end of a relationship actually almost feels like the death of a person because in the death of a person too, we're mourning the potential interactions we would have had with that person in the future. Um, Which is, it's pretty scary because it drops us off into complete solitude. It's the realization that all the relationships that we have are actually just projections of our own take on the situation. And for the most part, the people that we say we love, if you break down why you love them, well, it's because of the way that they make you feel. Like if they make you feel good, happy, loved, and safe, well, then you love them. But that actually has very little to do with them and much more to do with... um, you and your ego and the the stroking that it gets by feeling good with this person and I don't mean to shit all over love like I actually love love Um, I'm such a romantic I value monogamy I think marriage is beautiful but I think it's also important to look beneath the veil of love and modern society and all the ways in which they've we have, I guess, completely bastardized it to be 
not only commercially, but in a completely selfish and deluded way, I guess. Because unconditional love, the kind of love that exists as a foundation to our being, is to me true love. And this love doesn't try and change or manipulate the other. It doesn't operate from lack or from fear. It actually doesn't care who you are or what you do. It's the underlying state of being that we all are when we stop believing the stories of duality about right and wrong, good and bad. When we peel back all the Hollywood narratives about happily ever after and we get real about the fact that there is, there only is right here and right now. And to pretend that we know what we st- that we're still going to want to be married tomorrow is a lie. Like, we can't know. So all these projections into the future and the ideas of permanence that are attached to love, love simply is. It's not conditional. As soon as we put conditions on love, I love you if you do this. I love you if you don't do that. It actually destroys what love is at its essence, which simply, it's simply a state of being, I think. Yeah, loving awareness of the present moment is really all that there is. And when we fail to see the clarity and beauty of the present moment's perfect nature because of all our egoic stories, then we actually destroy love. And Hollywood teaches us to love in such a superficial way. So much to do with the good guy and the bad guy. You know, the heartbreaker is the bad guy. The cheater is the bad guy. The faithful lover is good. The romantic proposal is good. The happily ever ever narrative um, we seek simply isn't true. Every relationship that I know ebbs and flows because the nature of romantic love is that it brings up all our shadow stuff. It brings up all our shit our fears, our low self-worth, our trauma, our uncertainty, our jealousy, our desire for permanence and safety and certainty. And we're constantly being faced with the death of our, the death of our old self. And within that, we either choose to grow and shed our beliefs or we cling to our past self. And I think that that's probably a major source of tension in relationships. Like, are you shedding or are you clinging to your beliefs, to your stories, to your sense of self? And if one clings and one sheds, then essentially I think you grow apart. And relationships take a lot of work, but the work is internal and actually has nothing to do with the other person. The other person is a mirror to your stories and your fears and your judgments and if both parties can show up aware that their shit is their shit um well i think there's hope for evolution as a team there's a quote by esther perel that i'll paraphrase um that we will all have two to three marriages in our lifetime but only a small percentage of people will have that with the same person and it's just such a profound concept that there's these junction points in relationships where many people separate um, because they are not they are no longer the, the same person they were when the relationship started. And many people think, well, 
in another relationship, I won't have this. Like, I won't experience this because it's a different person. But the greater truth, at least through my experience, is that you take that story and you eventually project it onto the next person. And the work is to explore your beliefs. And whether you choose to do that with the same person or the next person or the next person, the belief follows you and it catches up with you. And so how amazing to have the opportunity in a very conscious relationship to actually start over with the same person, with that incredible awareness that you can have a new relationship with the same person and that you can evolve as two distinct people kind of re-meeting for the first time in this new place um but man it requires work it requires a lot of work and beyond all that it's really so crazy too to reflect that at our core we are complete stillness like unbothered unwavering stillness and that the emotions we experience and the identification and these feelings and stories and the things that we want and the things that we think we need none of that is our true essence they are like clouds that pass and we're the infinite blue sky but when we get too attached to the clouds and they become this fixed part of our being well then we're we're really quite powerless to the thoughts and these teachings permeate so many labels like from stoicism to buddhism to tantra and even the completely non-spiritual yet deeply spiritual teachings by people like byron katie osho talks about it eckhart Tolle talks about it it's the story of equanimity of observing your thoughts because we are the observer not the experience and the more we cling to the experience which is our feelings our desires our hopes the more misery we breed for ourselves byron katie says it she goes when i believe my thoughts i suffer and eckhart Tolle, he had a conversation with someone that spoke about being sad and and he said sit with it like okay you're sad right now so what you're sad and it's like watch the sadness and the person said oh yeah I am sad and it created space a little bit of space around the sadness and he said you are that space you know, it's the, that concept of the space in between the breath is not all that different. The inhale is warm and the exhale is cool, but both those things are stories. And that space in between the breath, that is who you are. It's complete stillness. It's the blue skies between the clouds. When you look into the sky, you're not looking at anything. Right now, I'm looking out my window at the blue sky and yeah, I can say I'm looking at the sky, but really when I look into it, it's this drishti. It's a gaze into nothingness because it's everything and it's nothing. And it's that same thing with the pause in between the breath. It's everything and it's nothing. And Osho talks about it as the periphery versus the center. And really that's where the work is when it comes to our emotions. And 
it's it's much easier when it comes to the negative emotions in air quotes i'm saying negative um things like sadness you know i've experienced quite a bit of sadness recently and it's so useful to have the awareness that i'm experiencing sadness i am not sad i'm experiencing the sadness that is going to come as it does and it'll go as it as it does and that's the impermanence of all these things that come through us. They're not who we are. And man, it feels good to identify with a sadness sometimes. Like, holy shit, pity party. I was having one this morning. And within that, I saw the humor in it. I am blessed to have an incredible mentor who I interviewed a few episodes back, um, Geraldine Madison. I sent her a text message. Oh, maybe I'll even read it to you. Um, let's pull it up. So without getting into too many details. Um, so I said to her, I'm, I'm feeling really sad. Knowing all these things, that it'll pass. That it's clearly not meant to be, that my worth is invalidated by his acceptance, but I can't stop crying. It feels like mourning what could have been, which of course is absurd because I miss the, in- but I miss the intimacy and connection. Anyways, if you have five minutes to lay it on me, no one snaps me out of a pity party better than you do. And so she called me and within four minutes was like, you know, she snapped me out of it. And it's, it's being able to be sad and simultaneously know that the sadness is not who you are. And it can be even more difficult to have that same detachment when it comes to the good feelings, but it's just as important because we have this tendency to aggrandize the bad, thinking it's never going to end. And then we, out of fear and trauma, will see the good things that come and automatically fear that they're going to end or be taken away from us. So most of us live in this perpetual state of either not enough or when is this going to end? When is the good going to end? And God damn it, that's no way to live. I'm actually going to play. I've been listening to Krishna Das's satsangs every Friday morning um, on YouTube. And I'll play you a little clip from his last one. I have a beautiful story he tells and the absurdity that's built in to feeling and getting too identified with our feelings. So I'll play that for you now. Sri Ramakrishna, who was the great saint in the 1800s in India, he talked about the way the practice of the repetition of the names of God which is what chanting is. He talked about the way that works. He said, every every repetition, every single repetition of one of these names is a seed. And just like a tiny, tiny little seed can have a huge tree within it. It has the potential of a huge tree. And when causes and conditions arise that are positive for the, that seed to grow and grow into a tree, that's what it will do. 
So he says every repetition of the name is a seed, just like that. And within that name is God, is real love, is peace, is bliss, is ecstasy, is reality in the seed of the repetition of the name. So when we chant, we are planting seeds that will grow into what they grow into. Now here's what he says. So he says the seeds of the repetition of the name that we, we chant get caught by the wind and they're blown away and they land on the roof of an old house. And that roof has uh, clay tiles. And back in the 1800s, those tiles were dried and hardened in the sun. And so over time and seasons, the seeds of the repetition of the name, which get caught between these tiles on the roof of the house, those tiles soften with rain and wind and snow and heat and everything. And when they get soft, those seeds of the repetition of the name begin to grow. They grow. They grow and they grow and they grow and they destroy the roof of this old house. And they keep growing. And then they destroy the walls of the house. Right? Ramakrishna says that house and that roof, that's who we think we are. That's our sense of me, our ego, that house. And it's destroyed by the repetition of the name. Now, that house, is that ultimately real? No, it was put together by our stuff, our karmas, our desires, our likes and dislikes, all that stuff. That created this house. And that house separates us from other houses and from the outside world. When we're in that house, when we, we think we are who we think we are, we're in that house. But when that house is destroyed by the repetition of the name, we are freed from the prison of thinking we are who we think we are. And we, be, we recognize our true nature, which is as wide as the whole sky, the presence being, the soul. And, one, and you'll notice what he doesn't say is what you're going to feel when this house is being broken down by the repetition of the name. Are you going to be blissful? Are you going to be sad? Are you going to be peaceful? Are you going to be, have ecstasy? Are you going to get depressed? You know why? Because it actually does not matter. Focusing on how you feel is more ego. 
Well, I feel good. This is a great meditation. I, maybe I should write down what happened today in meditation. Uh, yeah, as soon as this is over, that's what I'll do. I'll write this down because this is the way I want to meditate every day. I'm sure of it. This, I finally got it together now. Yes, I do. I don't think so. <laughs> First of all, in two seconds, you won't even remember what happened. So it isn't about our experience. It's the experiencer who's being dissolved. The bubble, this little bubble, floating bubble of meanness is being popped. And then we, be, we recognize ourselves as the ocean again. So do your practice, live your life, try to be a good human being. And don't think about yourself all the time. All we do is think about ourselves, and we never get tired of it. What a drag. So boring. How am I today? Ah, I feel like shit. Yeah, I feel like shit today. I'm always going to feel like shit. This is horrible. It's always like this. Meditation doesn't work. I'm going to give up that stuff. I'm gonna... Who cares? Turn it off. Let it go. Stop obsessing about ourselves. And so, you know, that's... That's kind of it. It's like within the sadness and the stories that we tell ourselves about how we feel and what we want and what we need and all these stories that are continuously floating in and out of our head and they're continuously changing and as soon as we get one thing, we want another and as soon as we get something that we want, we cling to it. It's like that is not who we are. One of the questions that came through in the Q&A was does God exist and that word is so loaded you know I grew up studying in a Catholic school because it was the only option to study in French in primary school and um, my mom is from France and so that was a value to my parent and to my parents And so I was faced with the concept of God as being this external being outside of myself. Generally male, um, generally full of spite and fear. You know, it was like God's watching mentality, which is why you should behave righteously. And I think that religion in that sense, can serve a place as a stepping stone for us to navigate the world. In in this Tantra book, Osho discusses how that notion of spirituality is perhaps a step above having absolutely no faith, because with no faith, we tend to be in a very much lack mentality of taker, taker, um, not enough, you know, I need to take to survive, survival mode. And certain religions like Christianity turn you into a giver. But the, the notion of giving under that context is still coming from a place of duality, of right and wrong action. When we step into religions like buddhism which actually isn't a religion it's you know a way of life we're trying to step away from that duality even more 
they preach equanimity as a way of observing right and wrong as two sides of the same coin and that the rightness and the wrongness, the good and the bad are just stories. They're the clouds. And that ultimately truth is the sky behind the clouds. You know, it's the ocean. It's not the wave. It's not the drop. And that is what God is to me. God is the eye in the center of the storm. And it pervades all of us. You know, it's it's the essence that animates life and it's the it's the part of us that is completely non-judgmental it is the observer it's our soul if you want to call it that um the word god is difficult because we have so many stories attached to what god is um but that's it god simply is as soon as you add any label to what god is then you're you're storytelling and it's no different than love love simply is um it's the same concept as the i am i am is your true nature as soon as you add any label those things they're impermanent they come and go i am a writer you know tomorrow I might I might never write another word again in my life so am I truly a writer no I am currently writing perhaps um these things that we identify ourselves as those are the ebbs and flows they're the waves but the ocean doesn't see a wave and say hey I'm that wave no sometimes the ocean's still sometimes it's crashing Um, but there's no identification with the labels. And I think that to me, my understanding of what God is, God simply is, and love simply is, and I simply am. And anything else, it's that periphery that Osho talks about. Um, It's not the center. Because in the center, everything just is. And there's no story attached to anything. And that is, that's where our power lies, actually, is tapping into that place of isness where everything simply is. And it's easier said than done sometimes, <laughs> particularly with romantic relationships. It's so crazy. Like the amount of things I have let go of in my life, all these stories, you know no longer being attached to australia if you you may or may not have followed my like my journey with this country of really wanting to stay here and finally in 2017 a massive shift in my life when i surrendered to not clinging to this place as being the source of my happiness not clinging to anything it's it's scary when you stop clinging to your stories because all these stories we have, they're, I mean, they're food for the ego. It's like, I am this, I am that, this, this makes me feel good, that makes me feel bad. But when you stop believing the stories, it's, it's like a free fall because you no longer, you no longer have anything to cling to. It's like falling off a cliff and all the different stories that make up your identity, they're like little cliff sides and sometimes they're massive. They're, they're, they're anchors that keep you stuck in one place in a belief 
And when you start questioning your beliefs, man, it's nothing's left. And in a sense, it's terrifying. I spoke about this with Geraldine. I'm like, what is there even to talk about with people anymore? Like once you stop believing your stories, you can't complain anymore. There's nothing to complain about. And you start to realize that the majority of people spend their day complaining about things. It's like, yeah, living in that eye of the storm is terrifying. And yet, as Geraldine reminded me, it's actually freedom. Because then you no longer have expectations of people or of yourself. You can just be. Osho talks about that. I mean, many people talk about this. Byron Katie talks about it. Um, Marcus Aurelius talks about it. Um, it's, it's action versus acting. And it's really living from this authentic place of reacting to the world as it shows up without projecting expectations about how you're supposed to be in society or how you're supposed to behave or what the right or wrong thing is. It's like you start flowing through life in an effortless way of just dealing with things as they come instead of living in your head and creating the problems. I'll read you a, a quote from... Um, from Osho's The Supreme Understanding, his Tantra book, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. So this is chapter 10, The Supreme Understanding. Everyone is, everybody is born in freedom, but dies in bondage. The beginning of life is totally loose and natural, but then society enters, then rules and regulations enter morality, discipline, and many sorts of trainings, and the looseness and naturalness and the spontaneous being is lost. One starts to gather around oneself in a sort of armor. One starts becoming more and more rigid. The inner softness is no longer apparent. On the boundary of one's being, one creates a fort-like phenomenon in order to defend, not to be vulnerable, to react for security and safety, and the freedom of being is lost. One starts looking at others' eyes, their approvals, their denials, their condemnations. Appreciation becomes more and more valuable. The other becomes the criterion, and one starts to imitate and follow others because one has to live with others. A child is very soft. He can be molded in any way, and the society starts molding him, the parents, the teachers, the school. And by and by, he becomes a character, not a being. He learns all the rules. He either becomes a conformist, that is bondage, or he becomes rebellious. That too is another, form, another sort of bondage. If he becomes conformist, orthodox, square, that is one sort of bondage. He can react. He can become a hippie. Can become a hippie. Can move to the other extreme. But that again is a sort of bondage because reaction depends on the same thing it reacts against. You may go to the farthest corner, but deep down in the mind, you are rebelling against the same rules. Others are following them. You are reacting, but the focus remains on the same rules. Reactionaries or revolutionaries all travel in the same boat. They may be standing against each other back to back, but the boat is the same. 
A religious man is neither a reactionary nor a revolutionary. A religious man is simply loose and natural. He is neither for something nor against. He simply is himself. He has no rules to follow and no rules to deny. He simply has no rules. A religious man is free in his own being. He has no molding of habits and conditionings. He is not a cultured being. Not that he is uncivilized and primitive. He is the highest possibility of civilization and culture because he is not a cultured being. He has grown as an awareness, but he doesn't need any rules. He has transcended rules. He is truthful, not because it is the rule to be truthful. Being loose and natural, he is simply truthful. It happens to be truthful. He has compassion, not because he follows the precept. Be compassionate. No. Be loose and natural. He simply feels compassion flowing all around. There is nothing to do on his part. He is just a byproduct of his growth in awareness. He is not against society nor for society. He is simply beyond it. He has again become a child, a child of an absolutely unknown world, a child in a new dimension. He is reborn. That that builds on, on what I spoke about last week. I mean, quoting Osho again from last week and building on the, the concept of acting versus action. It's it's really important not to force or will ourselves into being and feeling things that aren't true. But the power lies in observing what they are as a way to transcend them. So someone asked a question, um, how do we pinpoint the cause of our fear of abandonment and trauma? And after reading this book I had a profound shift like I can't even really put it into words yet it was a sort of ego death really where much of my clinging to the past stories just died like these abandonment fears and low self-worth projections into my relationships genuinely vanished I was reading the book and tears were just coming out of my eyes and I haven't been the same person since um but I don't think that I don't think that I would have been able to truly integrate the book had I not done work on myself. And that's the hard part, right? We grew up in a society that teaches us how to be and how to behave. And in doing that, it creates these deep-rooted stories that we cling to as a part of our identity of um it, it programs our subconscious essentially to react in the world in a certain way and so it's easy for me to say don't believe everything you think you know it's 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 almost cliche and in saying that it's it is the ultimate truth in this in this book osho explains the gradient, the scale between, say, um, using a meditation app like the Calm app and and the teachings of Krishnamurti. So on, on one, one side of the scale, we have a very much 
gross, like a very gross teaching where there's, you know, there's a, a phone involved because you need the app. And within that, there is uh, audio, sometimes visual. And these very gross inputs are still trying to get us to observe the mind, to distance ourselves from our thoughts. And then on the other side of the scale, there's teachings by people like Krishnamurti or tantric teachings, really pretty advanced tantra teachings by people like uh, Tilopa. Um, Tilopa and his disciple Naropa, where it's kind of like, just let go, let go of everything. There's no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. Nothing matters because you are the observer, not the experience. And that requires a incredible leap from the app to completely letting go of the story it's like lifetimes of conditioning of embedded stories of fears of trauma and so yes the end point might be to let go of the story but sometimes you have to actually look at the stories you have to look at the traumas in the face you have to look at your shadow and you have to do the work in a very material way in a very um if we're looking at the mind, the stories versus intuition, just the knowing, the intuition can become clouded by our stories. And so actually taking the time not to just dismiss our past and realize, hey, it's just a story. It doesn't matter. It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter, but you actually have to embody that. You have to really, truly believe it. And if you don't, if you're living in this limbo where you know that stories don't matter and you know that stories clinging to to fear clinging to the good sensations or you know averting yourself from the bad ones if you know uh, in your logical mind that that's true but you're still being influenced by your stories sit with them the work can be done in so many different ways um personally i have found profound use in Byron Katie's work. She dismantles um, thoughts by asking four questions. Uh, her first question, I mean, you, you have to read the book. She has it online too, I believe as well, but I mean, invest in the book. Um, she has great, so many great books. I thought, I'm looking at A Thousand Names for Joy is right in front of me. And her, her book, I Need Your Love, is that true? Holy shit, it's a slap in the face. Like, in the best way um but yeah her four questions are is it true the second one can you absolutely know that it's true the third is how do you react when you believe that thought and the fourth is who would you be without that thought and so these are tools to look at the way that you navigate in the world your thoughts and your beliefs and to start to break them down because it's all dandy to know that stories aren't useful but until you integrate the shadow until you sit with these beliefs and until you actually find a way to let them pass away they will have a grip on you and so yeah to get back to that question there's 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 a many ways um byron katie's work is one of them um, another one that I have done earlier this year, which was profound for me, um, 
is Lacey Phillips' online course uh, through the To Be Magnetic School. And she has one course in particular called Reparent, I think, it, I think it's called. And it takes you through all the stages of development and gives you guided meditations and journal prompts to essentially rewire the subconscious. And that to me has been incredible. Um, another really profound tool is to have a good therapist. I'm super lucky that my mentor is a depth psychotherapist. She has like a lifetime of experience in this field. And so when we, when we talk, it built into that is some pretty incredible therapy for me. Um, what else? Just sitting, sitting with yourself, sitting with your shadow. I'm actually in, I'm almost done writing an article about shadow work and shadow integration. And I'm going to record a podcast kind of running through the article after. Um, because only at 29 years of life am I actually understanding what it is to do shadow work. I always had this very superficial understanding of it and of the, the concept of projection. And I think that for the most part, it's explained in a very unhelpful way. So I hope that my writing might be useful to some of you. And um, I'll get to that soon to finish that up. But yeah, to, to wrap up that question, it's like the how is, is a deeply individual journey because two people can read the same book and take away completely different messages. Two people can do the same style of meditation, completely different takeaways. Two people can go to the same therapist, night and day experiences. So I think the most useful thing you can do is to cultivate a practice like Krishnadas speaks about in that quote for him he talks about uh, saying the name saying the name is essentially um well same as japa it's like the repetition of um one of god's different names it could be a mantra you know you could re repeat ram's name you could repeat krishna's name you can um repeat babaji's name there's all these different beings incarnated beings although some of them are potentially higher vibration than others but anyways find something that you resonate in the world of mantra chanting and start implementing these different various tactics to help you create distance between your thoughts and your higher self which is the person observing their thoughts that's kind of a non-negotiable when it comes to seeing, um, to pinpointing the causes of your fear. Because really, to to take a to get a clear look at yourself, um, you need to create distance. Because we create coping mechanisms. Our our ego is you know it's strong, but it's so fragile. And when we look back on our life, we often like to tell ourselves stories to protect ourself about the potential pain that's there it's kind of like when um there's these there's these almost hilarious narratives you know of kids experiencing their parents fighting so much that they develop add so that they're very highly distracted you know that's a coping mechanism 
to protect yourself. So journaling is very is very profound in terms of getting clarity. Um, the shadow work, I won't get into that too much because it's going to be quite a big article and I'll save it for a different podcast. But um, creating that space and that stillness and that quiet is is the place to start in terms of self-reflection. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. Hopefully that was useful. Okay, the next question is I just went through um, I just went through a pretty brutal breakup and I cannot stop crying. Help. So first of all, mm, I feel you like more than you know. Um, crying is an interesting one because it's it's so cathartic like it's so healing to cry really um until the last couple of months I would have never considered myself a crier and I've realized well first of all the irony in considering myself anything because you can't be a crier, you know, there's periods when you're crying and there's periods when you're not crying. So you're just as much not a crier as you are a crier. Um, But crying is a way to let go of things. It's so healing. It's, you know, built into the sadness that comes with crying is also such a release. And it feels good to cry you know you can you can take a step back amidst the crying and observe the pain but also observe the release and observe the 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 space that you're creating for grace and I was crying this morning and I'm that's when I messaged Geraldine and I was like hey having a pity party for myself can you help me snap out of it and her advice was actually to um write down 200 things that I'm grateful for and she's like write down those 200 things and then give me a call and we'll see if you still want to have a pity party and it's true it was it actually made me laugh like how how egoic to cry really at the end of the day it's like poor me you know I'm I'm so sad I'm feeling lonely and I'm feeling abandoned it's like it's kind of hilarious actually it's kind of hilarious it's like you've believed your story to the point of misery and I'm not sure that that awareness alone will be able to snap you out of it but it's the cultivation of the space between the crying and who you are, which is the observer of the crying. Um, I'll read a short part of um, Osho's book. He talks about crying. And so he goes, You are crying. When you are crying, you have become one with the crying. There is nobody to watch it. Nobody is there to see it. Be alert and aware of it. You are lost in crying. You have become the tears and the red swollen eyes and your heart is in a crisis. Teachers like Gurujif, when, when they say not to be identified, say, cry, nothing is wrong in it. 
but stand by the side and look at it. Don't be identified. And it is a wonderful experience if you can stand by the side. Cry. Let the body cry. Let the tears flow. Don't suppress it because suppression helps nobody. But stand by the side and watch. This can be done because your inner being is a witness. It is never a doer. Whenever you think it is a doer, there is identification. It is never a doer. You can walk the whole earth. Your inner being is never your inner being never walks a single step. You can dream a million dreams. Your inner being never dreams a single one. All movements are on the surface. Deep in the depth of your being, there is no movement. All movements are in the periphery. Just like the wheel moves, but at the center, nothing moves. At the center, everything remains as it is, and the wheel moves around the center. Remember the center. Watch your behavior, your actions, your identifications, and a distance is created. By and by, a distance comes into existence. The watcher and the doer become two. You can see yourself laughing. You can see yourself crying. You can see yourself walking, eating, making love. You can see many things. Whatsoever is going around, you remain the seer. You don't jump and become one with whatsoever you are seeing. And so, yeah, if you're feeling upset, that's the tantric way. It's not suppressing anything and it's definitely not distracting yourself. So if you're feeling sad, don't jump into the next thing be it a television show or another relationship. It's a, it's a dance, you know, in between letting yourself feel the thing, but not becoming the thing. And I think that a lot of the pathology these days is bred out of just jumping into the next thing or suppressing the emotion that we're feeling. And the irony, I get into this in depth in the shadow article that I'll be publishing soon, is that the more you observe, the less power you give to the thing. So maybe you don't want to be crying anymore. So sit with the crying. And in sitting with the crying and just observing the crying and letting yourself cry, the crying stops. If the crying stops because you distract yourself with, you know, a movie or uh, another romantic relationship straight away, you're suppressing, you're suppressing, and you're still identified with the pain, and you're still identified in the gross, and you're not slipping into the subtle nature, into the center. Um, you're staying in the periphery. So crying is not a bad thing, but don't be too identified as the crier because you aren't the crier. You're the person observing the crying. So I'll tell you one more story. This is one of my favorites, and it's the story of Lin Chi and his master or his guru and how um, most people in the town knew Lin Chi to be an enlightened man and many of them didn't know his guru because it was a guru-disciple relationship and he was mostly silent. But the town knew of him very well through Lin Chi who is their enlightened um master and they would go to Lin Chi to meditate and learn from and so Lin Chi's master dies and at the funeral uh, Lin Chi is crying he's weeping like a child whose mother has died and people couldn't believe it they thought that he'd attained enlightenment and yet he was crying like a small child and um, 
the belief is like it's okay if a person is ignorant to be crying because they're clinging to a story but when a person is enlightened awakened um, and has been teaching the nature of immortality and eternal and how you know it nothing di ever dies um they started to question lin chi's enlightenment and so one of lin chi's intimate friends came and told him it is not good and what will people think of you already there is a rumor people are thinking that they are wrong in thinking that you have attained enlightenment your whole prestige is at stake stop crying and a man like you need not cry and lin chi said but what can i do the tears are coming it is their dharmata who am i to stop them i neither reject nor accept i remain inside myself now tears are flowing nothing can be done if my prestige is at stake let it be if the people think i am not enlightened that is their own business but what can i do i have left the doer a long time ago there is no longer any doer it is simply happening these eyes are crying and weeping on their own accord because they will not be able to see the master again and it was nourishment to them they lived on that food I know very well that the soul is eternal. Nobody ever dies. But how to teach these eyes? What to tell them? They don't listen. They don't have any ears. How to teach these eyes? Don't weep. Don't cry. Life is eternal. And who am I? It is their business. If they feel like crying, they cry. And so, oh, it's so profound. It's like even an enlightened person can cry. But the enlightenment comes from being the observer in the tears. It's not identifying with the tears. So crying is not the problem. You know, anger is not the problem. Um, sexual desire is not the problem. The problem is becoming too identified with the action and not leaving space between you, the observer, and the thing that you are doing, feeling, or experiencing. And so yeah that space is grace it's it's the space in between the breath it's who you are your true nature is always at peace and so you may be feeling very overwhelmed and very sad and very lonely but your work remains to observe all that is as opposed to identifying with it and so quickly can we snap out of it you know within the tears I know for me personally there's been so much laughter and even the awareness of the absurdity you know of all the things and yet allowing yourself to feel what you're feeling and not feeling the need to repress and run away and hide so yeah it's the dance the dance between awareness observation and just kind of allowing what is to naturally come that's action you know it's not acting as soon as you get into your head and you think i shouldn't be crying or i shouldn't feel sad or i shouldn't be x y or z it's like you shouldn't actually be anything like you're just being and the more you learn to observe observe the being that you are um the more authentic uh, your life is the next question was actually asked three times, so I felt like I had to address it. Um, it was to one in one way or another, what are your beliefs on twin flames? Um, 
I, I actually haven't explored many of these labels all that much. Um, things like soulmates and twin flames and yeah, these, these different labels. I think people define them very differently. Um, what I do feel to be true is that we have it's like a type of karmic contract I think it's something that is definitely greater than us that is unexplicable and that actually doesn't have to be understood it's these types of connections with people um, where there's profound profound growth that is available if we choose to engage in it in a conscious way and these relationships can be quite painful because there's a lot of um a lot of shit our shit comes up you know that's where that's where the growth is there's no separating growth from the mud it's like um it's like the lotus flower really it's like the lotus flower blooms from the mud and to really grow you have to be willing to look in the mirror and that can be scary sometimes so twin flames um yeah i just i don't have much to say about them i just don't know enough to really even uh define it in the way that you probably see it but I know that for me there's been these types of cosmic connections with people where there's something bigger than the both of us I felt that so deeply in this last relationship like it was actually unexplicable um, the bond from the start and I in a way like I, I've never experienced before, um, have been able to see all the parts of myself that need, well, all the stories really, the parts of myself. Like I, there are no parts to myself. So I was able to take a look at all the stories that I'm telling myself and slowly chip away at them and take layers, you know, unpeel layers of the onion because anything that brings us clinging or aversion is a story. Because everything passes by, everything comes and goes. All these things that you know we identify with, they just they come and go. And so there's nothing quite like a romantic relationship to dredge up all the all our most wonderfully fabricated stories and some of the, the most painful ones are, are the most beautiful stories because within the beauty is embedded loss, right? Because, oh, I love love, you know? I love a relationship where there's um, great intimacy, great sex, laughter, communicate. It's like there's all these things that we can say, I love, I love that. But due to the impermanent nature of life, if we get too identified with the good stuff, the misery. And likewise, if we get too identified with the bad stuff, misery. So yeah, that is to me maybe what twin flames are. It's like people coming together, um, blessed by the universe 
in so many ways to grow to grow to see to see yourself in a new light to explore the ways in which you have healing to do and letting go and surrendering and trusting and yeah so i just looked up a definition for twin flame <laughs> bless google like google's definition comes up as cosmopolitan.com which is surely not a reliable source of information yeah i mean every every website that that i see popping up has completely different interpretations this one says twin flames um is two people who are split into different bodies but share the same soul i mean i don't know about that um this to me is more is more relatable it says simply put your twin flame is your mirror and you know sure i agree with that but also everyone is your mirror and the interesting thing to me about relationships that are romantic that are kind of that next level of mirrorness is that when there is sexual attraction between two people it forces you to look at that mirror a little bit longer than with many people. So often when we see parts of ourselves, this is shadow work. I mean, when we see parts of ourselves in people in our day to day, it's pretty easy to dismiss them because we have no magnetic pull to these people. With romantic partners, on the other hand, the sexual chemistry, I actually heard this years ago and it just was like, ah, that feels true. The sexual chemistry is like the karmic contract, right? It's what forces you to return to this person long enough to look in the mirror that is this person. And the same goes with family. You know, the, the Ram Dass quote that if, if you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. It's like, there's people in our lives that we are so bonded to in a way that is generally not even understandable with a rational mind. It doesn't have to be understood. And that connection gives you the opportunity to really take a look at yourself because all the stories that come up and those stories aren't who you are. So if you're willing to do the work to let go you start to reconnect with your true essence and your higher self and that God inside of you, the blue skies of Samadhi, the infinite ocean, whatever metaphor you want to use. And so, yeah, it's using people as a way to shed your identity. And same as meditation. It's just creating space. It's creating space between the things that you do and who you are. And I'll wrap it up, I guess, with... The connection to all of this really is enlightenment. Like that's this concept of, you know, nirvana, of samadhi, of enlightenment. It's it's so much simpler than we make it. And yet it's potentially the hardest task that there is. Um, but that is enlightenment. It's a complete shedding of the storyteller, the storytelling 
You know, it's realizing that you are the storyteller. You are, you are watching the movie. You are not the script. You are not the director. You are not the actor. You're not the writer. And having the awareness of this is a step in the right direction, but it is not the job completed. Um, in the Book of Secrets, there's a whole chapter on sudden enlightenment and its obstacles. And they discuss enlightenment in such a, a simple way as essentially mind being the spiritual disease and meditation being nothing but the medicine. Um, I'll read, uh, read a little bit to end off this podcast. So the Buddha is said to have said, I am a medicine man, a vadya, a physician. I am not a teacher and I have not come I have not come to give you doctrines. I know a certain medicine which can cure your diseases. And don't ask about health. Take the medicine, destroy the disease, and you will know what health is. Don't ask about it, Buddha says. I am not a metaphysician. I am not a philosopher. I am not interested in what God is and what soul is, in what Kaivalya is aloneness, or moksha is liberation, and nirvana is. I'm not interested. I'm simply interested in what disease is and how it can be cured. I'm a medicine man. His approach is absolutely scientific. He has diagnosed human dilemma and disease. His approach is absolutely right. <clears throat> Destroy the barriers. What are the barriers? Thinking is the basic barrier. When you think, a barrier of thoughts is created. Between you and the reality, a wall of thoughts is created. And thoughts are more dense than any stone wall can be. And then there are many layers of thought. You cannot penetrate through them and see what the real is. You go on thinking about the real. You go on imagining what real is. And the real is here and now waiting for you. If you become available to it, it will happen to you. You go on thinking about what the real is. How can you think if you don't know? And he continues on a bit later. Through thinking, you never touch the unknown. You only touch the known, and it is meaningless because you already know it. You can go on feeling it again and again. You may enjoy the feeling, but nothing new comes of it. Stop thinking. Dissolve thinking, and the barrier is broken. Then your doors are open and the light can enter. And once the light enters, you know that there is old, that the old is no more. You know now that which you are is absolutely the new. It never was before. You never had known it. You may even say that this is the ancient most. It was there always, not known to you. So it's pretty heavy concepts there, but I think, again back to the scale of the calm app to Krishnamurti. It's about meeting yourself where you're at, but having that awareness that the space we create between the doer and the observer, that's where your power lies. So romantic relationships, they are, they are something. And they're a gift really everything is a gift all the polarities of life give us opportunity to stop believing our thoughts and there are many many tools for you to do that both 
um, both using the mind and not using the mind. You know, like Osho says in the end is you can't actually understand it using the mind because it has to be experienced. But you also have to meet yourself where you are. And so if very vague concepts like Krishnamurti's teachings, I'll read you a Krishnamurti quote. He says, I maintain that truth is a pathless land and you cannot approach it by any path whatsoever, by any religion, by any sect. So, I mean, heavy. And he has been kind of hated on, to be honest, because he didn't want to teach anyone. He rejected labels. He didn't want to be anyone's guru. And his, his... his teachings were very esoteric like so out there he's like you don't need meditation and you don't need meditation it's true but you need to meditate to realize that you don't need meditation and so in the same vein it's like the mind you can consider these stories a disease but sometimes you have to sit with them and do the work which requires the mind. So for example, Byron Katie's work. Byron Katie's work is of the mind. It's using, it's using the mind to dismantle stories, but it's taking you to a place where you no longer need Byron Katie's work. And same with meditation. You know, meditation's taking to you to a place where you no longer need meditation. But ultimately, you have to meet yourself where you are. So to simply take the quantum leap, like it, it works for some people, like this instant enlightenment, like you read one thing or you hear one Krishnamurti quote and you're like, ah, I get it, no longer miserable. Um, if that's you, amazing. But if it's not, lean into your, lean into your pain, you know, observe it, sit with it. Um, do the shadow work, do the inner child healing work. Um, don't get too identified with any of it but also have the awareness that simply ignoring it doesn't make the story go away okay I feel like I just blacked out and don't even remember what I said during any of that but hopefully some of it was useful and planted some seeds for you to transcend your bullshit and find the infinite peaceful bliss that lies inside of you because it does despite times sometimes being hard um my mom actually said something let me find i wrote it down she said life is difficult but the moment is always fine and i mean if that doesn't summarize this whole podcast i don't know what does Life is full of stories, but moment to moment to moment to moment, everything is okay. So sit with that for a bit. My woke-ass mom dropping some truth bombs on me this morning amidst my crying. Anyways, be well. I'd say be happy, but you don't have to be anything. Observe. Observe yourself. Don't get too attached to your stories. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.